Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. Why do we go on pilgrimage? And why, if Christians are going to go on pilgrimage anywhere, do they go on pilgrimage to England? Besides the fact that we love it, of course. Today is part two of a two-part exploratory episode. Part one contained chapters one and two of my own retrospective of my time with a band of pilgrims in the UK. But keep your map in hand, fellow Anglophiles. We are still moving. Get a nice strong cup of tea. We've got a journey ahead today into the lives and the homes of some holy people. Chapter 3, Saints. Today we're in Norwich, and just now I'm entering the Church of Julian of Norwich. This is the small church where she was installed as an anchoress in a cell just to the right of the altar. Now, as I'm just stepping down, and you might hear the quality of the sound having changed, where she would have written and edited her revelations of divine love, and where she wrote the words, God said not, thou shalt not be tempested, thou shalt not be afflicted, but thou shalt not be overcome. So we were sitting in Julian of Norwich's cell me and four other women. In a moment of silence, one of the women said, I'm sorry, can I just ask, why would someone do this to themselves? How could locking yourself away please God? It was a great question. I loved that she asked it. Certainly God doesn't ask any of us to make martyrs of ourselves, right? And how often do we bring suffering on ourselves out of ambition, impatience, misunderstanding what God wants? How you become a saint isn't always obvious. Why do different generations honor and love particular holy people more than others? Are the fruits of sainthood perennial and come back around in times we need them most? That brings me to a stop that we have to make if we're going on an English pilgrimage. Good old Canterbury. So because you're very lovely, you get to come and 
up here, which people aren't usually allowed to come up to. This is the Trinity Chapel. Dean David Monteith gave us a tour of the cathedral after closing. We'd come to see the ancient cathedral, or ceremonial chair, of the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the site of the old miracle-working shrine of St. Thomas Becket. Now, if you've read T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral, if you've got some basic English history under your belt, you'll know who this guy is, but in case you don't, in the 12th century, Thomas was a priest, then an archbishop, who thought King Henry II should not meddle so much with church authority. They had a falling out, and one day, while celebrating Mass, Thomas was hacked to death by a gang of knights sent by the king. Miracles followed his death, healings. Nearly 900 years later, what do we still find at the site of the murder of this iconic and controversial Anglican saint? And obviously the shrine of Thomas Beckett stood here from 1220. And within three years of his death was canonized. One of the quickest canonizations that ever happened. And the reason, as far as we can tell, just the sheer shock and the impact of an archbishop being murdered in his own cathedral in a fight with the powers that be. Martyrdom is not a thing of the past, but is a thing of the present. There were more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than any previous century in the whole of the Christian story. And so that connection between the persecuted and suffering church and Beckett's story is important to us here. St. Thomas's shrine is not there today. It's a space, really, mostly empty, surrounded by stone altars and towering stained glass. And yet, if martyrdom is a supreme example of God taking what we intend for evil, turning it to good, maybe simple emptiness is actually a great reminder when we're distressed and perplexed to just leave space, to wait for what God will do. The final results are not yet obvious. Now, not all martyrdoms go down in history, and not all are red martyrdoms, the ones that end in violent death. There are others called white martyrdoms, faithful lives lived to the full and marked by spiritual rigor and ascetic discipline, the kind I think we can all aspire to in different ways. Let's head to the countryside now, where we spent a lot of our afternoons making side trips away from the cathedral cities into teensy tiny villages, much to the chagrin of our coach driver, where our pilgrim band encountered the lives of several small town priests who you may have heard of. John Keeble, John Newton, George Herbert, Let's stop by John Keeble's parish at Hursley, All Saints. For non-Anglicans or non-church history nerds out there, John Keeble was a major influencer in a revival movement in the 19th century called the Oxford Movement. Now, we can't say his sermons were as exciting as George Whitfield's or Amy Semple McPherson's, but that was part of the point. It was a movement of quiet, persistent pastoral faithfulness combined with uncompromising social justice advocacy for the poor and the marginalized. Keeble served as a country vicar at Hursley from 1836 until his death. Here's the current priest, Father William Prescott, on what it's like to minister in a place with such a legacy. There are quite a number of people who followed him, um, and they've all 
we all have an effect and somewhat seep into the walls. Insofar as you create a place of worship, you create a feeling in the worshipper. It was about everyday piety. Uh, it was about God in your life every day, out in the field. You know, this is his vision. His vision wasn't for smells, bells, and, 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 and pink gloves, and fancy hats, and all of this. I think all that would have probably irritated him. He was, he was a pragmatic, practical, but pious man who saw Christianity as applicable to the working man as it was to the monk uh, in his monastery. Spiritual legacies, of course, are not often uncomplicated. When you actually go where powerful history happened, your cozy feelings can get discomfited as they come into contact with the present. We don't live then, after all. We live now. And spiritual legacies are also complicated by changing perspectives on the past. Things can get clearer as you get farther away. Not everyone agrees on where in the past we should take our examples. Remember little getting. Let's pop back there for a second. In the choir of the church, I had a chat with one of our pilgrims, Father John Locke, about the complexity of the kind of spiritual legacy that can inspire some, but make others feel disquieted. It's moving and it's troubling at the same time. Like it's moving that they were trying to live in, a, in an intentional community, but it's also uh, maybe a, an anticipation of enthusiasm and sort of like trying to say all 150 Psalms. There's a sort of like, an impulse to earn our salvation, I think, by excessive works of religious devotion. That's not a, an achievable or sustainable uh, method of prayer for 99% of Christians, right? I'm kind of sort of troubled by that. There's just a, a, a glut of religiosity that I think can actually do tremendous spiritual harm for, for people. Holy people make a lot of headway in the kingdom of God. And they are trustworthy guides on our own spiritual pilgrimages, as we're looking for examples of people changed into the likeness of Christ by daily prayer or commitment to place or by a radical decision to say no. People did not come to Canterbury because they thought pilgrimage was worth doing. They came to Canterbury because they thought they were going to encounter the living God in Jesus Christ. And that through that encounter, their lives were going to be transformed in some kind of a way. Healed, restored, forgiven, whatever. Um, and so while we talk a lot about pilgrimage these days, um, increasingly I keep reminding us, you know, whilst pilgrimage is a wonderful thing, it's good to go on pilgrimage. Um, why are you going on pilgrimage is the more important question. Who are you going to encounter? How are you going to come away changed? But when we visit holy places and holy people, it's also good to remember that saints' halos come primarily from their trust in God, not primarily from their achievements. Speaking of achievements, is that Stratford I see before me? Let's see what we find as we approach the Bard's hometown. Chapter 4, Meeting the Celebrity. Now we're in Stratford-upon-Avon, and... We're spending the afternoon taking some tours. Right now we're on a walking tour and we're waiting on our tour guide to get us tickets to go into Holy Trinity Church, Stratford to see where William Shakespeare is buried in the chancel 17 feet down 
because he didn't want to be pulled up out of the graveyard when it got too full and sent to the charnel house um, and be stuck in a bone fire, which is, I guess, where the word bonfire comes from. Uh, All the bones would be burned so you'd have uh, room for more people in the graveyard when it got too full. The sound you're hearing in the background is actually a fun fair. There's just nothing like being in a place where history and the present are coming together. But one thought I had, I just went into Shakespeare's birth home and his father was in city government and sold gloves. So just to say, no matter what you do, you never know what your children will end up doing. Spaces where the past and present come together, become thin to each other. When Americans dream of going to England, that's what we dream about. If you had lived in the 1930s, surely you would have hung with the Inklings. You listened to the Monarch's Christmas Address every year from your home in Sheboygan or Dallas. You've wondered once or twice whether America made a big mistake by getting fussed about a few extra taxes. There's an elephant in the tea room here. Going to England was a lot like meeting a celebrity for me, a celebrity whose house you're going to stay in for a few weeks and who you hope actually likes you. And I felt nervous because I knew that part of my pilgrimage was going to be to feel vulnerable. What would happen when I got to this place that I dreamed about? Would I get the experience that I hoped for? Would they like me? And would it be real or just my rose-colored glasses that made it exciting. I was in places I'd dreamed of, but I was also a foreigner who couldn't tell the coins apart or who didn't realize I didn't actually like kippers or I couldn't understand some of the accents that I adored. But celebrities only become friends when you spend time offstage. It can take time to just relax, see what's really in front of you, what might exceed your expectations if you'll allow it, sometimes to challenge them. One of my favorite pilgrim stops was at the Kilns. The Kilns was C.S. Lewis's home for 33 years. Because I've done a lot of research on C.S. Lewis's life and work, I had imagined this house a thousand times. Of course, if I'd lived there, I would have charmed all the cats, made toast and tea, taken idyllic walks, told salty jokes with the Lewis brothers, played Scrabble, talked about Narnia and the North until the wee hours. The visit was, for me, magical. It really was. And standing in the kiln's garden, head achy with sinus congestion, a neighbor's kid was screaming and crying next door. The house had been remodeled several times. It wasn't like it was back then. I was shocked to see how close Lewis actually lived with the unmarried Mrs. Moore. They had adjoining rooms. And others lived there now, of course. Warney's old study held guitar amps and podcasting equipment. There was no garden cat. Lewis's own books were not there. They were stored away in the archives of Wheaton College in Illinois. Other books are now on the shelves. And this means something good, these changes. This is a place where Christian life and scholarship are still happening. It's a live place. But it was also a good reminder that loving the past and its great people, learning from them, it's not the same as nostalgia. I asked a pretty starry-eyed question to our tour guide at the Kilns. And I got a good answer. Francesca, okay. Francesca has taken us on a tour of the kilns and you've been doing this for a little while. What's something that still really surprises you or still really fascinates you about this place? 
I think it's probably actually just the relationships in the house because, you know, you read the Chronicles of Narnia, you might have an idea of a very sort of rosy life. You know, your favourite authors, you imagine them having kind of perfect lives, which is never the case, but certainly as a child you do. And I think the complexity of the relationships that actually occurred in this house, but not everything is as, as it seems. Mrs. Moore was definitely unpleasant, difficult. So I think that's in the surprising aspect of the house because it seems very idyllic and I'm not sure it entirely was. I mean, for someone who wrote so much about Christian charity and you, you have to imagine there were places in his life where he had to exercise it. Well, certainly I think the kilns was one, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It takes, it must have taken a lot of patience for the house to have mm. been a peaceful environment. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe... <laughs> in England, I tried to embrace the vulnerability and occasional disappointments and pay attention. The same Lord then as now is not preserving a moment, but working all things together for the good. It's the wise steward who knows how to bring out the treasures new and old, who knows that a fun fair next to a graveyard can be a beautiful thing. Thank you. You're welcome. Hey there, podcast listener. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you probably know that The Living Church is not just a podcast. Oh no, my friend. TLC is a publishing ministry with a unique magazine, independent church news reporting, a stellar theology blog, resources for parish ministry, many of them free. I could go on. Stop me now. Stop me now. We're rooted in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion, but we have a big heart for the unity of all God's people. You know that I love that you're here, but I don't want you to just stay in the podcast space and miss out on other ways our ministry might serve you. You can go to livingchurch.org and see what all TLC offers. How can we serve you today? One way we might serve you is coming up in September. We're hosting an event with an amazing community of friends at All Souls Episcopal Church in Oklahoma City, a conference called The Human Pilgrimage. What does it mean to be human? How do we live fully as creatures loved, limited, and liberated by God? Join The Living Church September 26th to 28th in Oklahoma City and be refreshed by three days of world-class keynotes, friendship, and meditation on who we are as creatures in Christ. Right now, you also get 15% off all tickets with the promo code EARLYBIRD. Go to livingchurch.org forward slash events for more information and to buy your tickets. And I hope to see you there. Chapter 5, Art and Time Now it is time to embrace the romance. Yes, there is a danger of getting stuck, but entering those thin places between past and present are also so beautiful. As pilgrims, I think we found some of the most profound thin places in the art and artifacts of the journey. Coventry Cathedral is a beautiful illustration of this. Attacked during World War II, the bombed-out ruins of the medieval cathedral are now a sort of anteroom to the new cathedral, built in an ultra-modern, brutalist style. Both together, past and present, have become an important contemporary witness to peace and to God's providence. And then, this tapestry. It's called Christ in Glory in the Tetramorph. How large is this, this one single piece of woven cloth? It's as big as a singles tennis court. Mm. It weighs about a ton. It took about two years to weave. 
It was woven in the south of France in a factory on a loom, which was the only one in Europe big enough to take it. The image comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 4. <clears throat> so it's, it's an image of what St. John sees in heaven, basically. And then what's that between his feet? So this is the fi- a small, tiny human figure yes. with no face, yes. neutral gender, yes. s- between the pierced feet of Jesus. That's every man. <clears throat> ah. it's, it's man. It's about six feet high, something like this. So if you can imagine humanity completely defenseless, standing between the feet of Christ, possibly not even knowing what the figure is above him, but still he's under Christ's protection, is what the, the artist is saying. Now, do you remember in the first part of this retrospective, when we were in Hampton Court Palace, where we saw that tapestries can teach kings? Church art can be powerful. It can form and inform, or malform and misinform, about the things of God. It can be used to inspire or to control us. We can only do or think, perhaps, what we can imagine and feel, and that's where art comes in. And we know flying buttresses, stained glass, perhaps icons or statuary pretty well if we're Anglicans. But let's go back in time to view another piece of art that used to be in the standard Anglican repertoire, doom paintings. Yes, you heard me right, doom paintings, scenes of the final judgment. They would hang in a church for people to see particularly as they came into a church or came out of a church. And I want to take you with me into Holy Trinity Church Coventry, where a medieval doom painting has survived. Let's see what it says to us. So I'm here with Mike, what's your last name, Mike? Draper. Mike Draper, and he's showing us this doom painting in Holy Trinity Church in Coventry. And I am wondering, do you have any idea how, if I were a parishioner in the 15th century and I was walking under this doom painting, coming to mass, what kind of effect do you think that a painting like this had on the daily life of of worshippers? I think the main purpose of a painting like this would have been to remind people that the choices they made during their daily lives, whether or not they called on the name of Christ, whether or not they believed, whether or not they behaved in an appropriate way, would have consequences in the afterlife. And that was the purpose of it, to remind people that the choices they make do have consequences. And hopefully, it would have done that. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. It just strikes me that the the artistry, the money, the time, the theological thoughtfulness that went into a painting like this, that went into the architecture and the building of this church, this is all toward the same purpose of shaping the spiritual lives of the everyday person. It may very well do. And this parish church was where the working people, the tradespeople, the craftspeople would have come. So they weren't the the wealthy landed gentry. Mm -hmm. These were the ordinary working people. Mm -hmm. Um, So they had some understanding, but they hopefully will have been meeting a lot of people and being able to live out a Christian life uh, to show other people how it should be done. Mm. Do you think this painting has any similar effect on people today? 
I'm not sure people are quite so sold on the idea of, of hell and eternal damnation as they used to be. Maybe they, they had enough of fire falling around them <laughs> in, so, um, yes. in the 1940s. Indeed. Right. Thank you, Mike. Pleasure. If art can teach or wrestle with the faith, we also see it as faith's expression. Is it a coincidence that so many of England's most renowned priests were also poets? Or that England's best poetry is, you could argue, deeply Christian? T.S. Eliot, Chaucer, Shakespeare, John Donne, The Dream of the Rude, countless hymns. There's a tiny chapel in Sandham, the Sandham Memorial Chapel, whose inner walls are covered in gargantuan paintings by the artist Stanley Spencer. They're scenes from his memories of World War I laundry, cooking, scrubbing floors in barracks, mostly. They're domestic, intimate, yet worshipful. And above the altar, we see soldiers rising from their graves, handing their white memorial crosses to Christ. Even the horses rise, surprised and pleased, shaking dirt from their manes. England is a place where the imagination, the soul, has been steeped in Christianity for over 15 centuries. And in that steeping time, slipping between the cracks of British understatement, through the pain and complexities of religious and political violence, the sweetness of quiet faithfulness, prayer, intelligence, humor, come some hard-won, time-tested, heart-breaking things of beauty. As the pilgrimage was drawing to a close, I decided to book a train and to go up to Cambridge to see my friend, Dr. Jeremy Begbie, theologian, pianist, Church of England priest. And he took me on a tour of King's College Chapel in Cambridge, which you may know for their choir. You may have heard some of their Christmas concerts. You may also know them for their dizzyingly intricate, towering stained glass windows. One word about the stained glass. If you visit, please bring binoculars not just a smartphone. You're going to want to sit and use your eyes. Outside the chapel, construction workers were pounding away at an installation of solar panels for the 16th century roof. This felt, let me tell you, like a perfect time to ask Jeremy a similar question I'd asked others. So what's it like to minister in the present in a place that is so in touch with the past? How do you treasure a history without living in it? And of course, if you ask Jeremy Begbie, you're also going to hear something about the arts. It's, no, it's when you're surrounded by history, every inch has many, many stories behind it that stretch back centuries. I guess it just means that you don't take yourself quite so seriously and that you realize after you've gone, a lot of this is just going to continue <laughs> and more history will be made. So you're, you're much more aware of the passing of time and the shoulders on which you stand and the people that you're dependent upon. The communion of saints, you could say. The history thing is a mixed blessing. You stop thinking you're the first person to meet this or that problem or this or that issue. You, you, that kind of pride and uh, taking the present terribly seriously as if everything you're now facing has never been faced before. So there's always going to be a wisdom from the past. The downside, of course, is that you get stuck in it. You think that you have something to kind of replicate what happened two or three hundred years ago. And that's not, that's not what we need at all. We need to learn from the past, but of course then adapt for the future. 
wisely, adapt wisely for the present and the future. Is there a specific instance um, of this that you can think of in your time at Cambridge where you thought this moment could not have happened at a place other than this? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, I remember when my son was in King's College Choir here. Um, we went to the carol service to hear him sing in the famous carol service. And I saw him and behind him was John Rutter and behind Rutter was a very famous composer then called John Taverner. And I looked John at these, Taverner? Yeah, and I looked at these three together and I thought, well, we must have done something right as parents. <laughs> Great example, thank you. Maybe this was part of what I hoped to take away. My own glittering bit of shrine. A good relationship with the past, with our saints, with our beautiful tradition, means treasuring its wisdom, being at home with it. But it also means a pathway to humility. That's not something that I expected. I'm not the first one to be here, it says. It's not all on me, I realize. I come. I go. Others will come and go. And God will be faithful. Jeremy went home for dinner, and I stayed at King's College Chapel for Coral Evensong. I went punting. I had an ice cream. I read Anthony Trollope while the sun set. Epilogue. Why do we go on pilgrimage? To be changed, I think. Even with all our love of tourist comforts and resistance to disappointments, we don't want to stay the same. Yes, I'll probably keep my shoes on and take the bus to the holy mountain, but I hope I still expect to be challenged, heartbroken, or healed by holy places. And is England a holy place? Augustine of Canterbury, when he arrived to evangelize in the 6th century, to his surprise, found there were already Christians in Britain. As an American Anglican, I continue to ask in 2023, what will we do with what we've inherited? And how do we share what we've been given? I remember being at the National Gallery in London, watching art students copy Caravaggio's Supper at Emmaus, And yet not one of them seemed to see that the basket of grapes was suspended supernaturally halfway off the table. The past continues to teach us. I hope we have eyes to see. And I think Anglicanism can continue to point, by God's grace, to what is most intimate and most sublime about the gospel itself. When all the living church pilgrims had gone home, I was left by myself in London. I booked a verger tour at Westminster Abbey. He took us past the barrier and up a small flight of wooden steps into the raised shrine of St. Edward the Confessor, the great Anglo-Saxon king known for wisdom and holiness. Along the bottom of the shrine were empty, egg-shaped holes large enough for a person to kneel. I asked the verger when the rest of the group had gone down, could I stay there a moment by myself? Of course, he said with a smile and handed me a quaint little pillow for my knees.
Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. You can support this podcast by clicking the link in the show notes today. Special thanks for this two-part episode goes out to Paul Lilly, Mark Michael, Pinky Palmer, Michael Casey, Zach Giuliano, Fiona Brampton, David Monteith, William Prescott, John Locke, Jeremy Begbie, Francesca at the Kilns, Mike at Coventry Cathedral, Jacinta and Dominic, our pilgrimage coordinators, Belinda, our long-suffering coach driver, the good people at Winchester Cathedral for giving us permission to use excerpts from a Sunday service, and every pilgrim and tour guide who let me stick a microphone in their face. If you'd like to go on pilgrimage with the Living Church, we're going again, this time to the Holy Land this April. Registration is open and spots are filling up. Find the link in the show notes and you can learn more. Next week, we've got a nice chatty office hour with our new executive director, Matthew Olver. And if you missed it, a bonus episode came out a couple days ago with professional coach Matthew Hoskinson on being a pastor to pastors. A lot going on at the Living Church Podcast. So donate, donate, donate. Until next time, our hardworking producer is Leslie Thompson. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been good to be with you. Peace.